we're doing this work, everyone's got pieces of it, and, and as it resonates with, um, with communities, I think uh, it's pretty powerful. So to, to keep hearing this and, and then to work with scholars uh, regionally on this is really helpful and exciting. Um, I, I need to start by saying, and, and Sonia mentioned, I'm a rural sociologist, so I'm not a health disparities expert in any matter. I just know that this work that we've been doing, increasingly we have to create a whole system in which this is part of it, and that's how um, I've sort of gotten into this arena. Um, my background is on poverty alleviation, um, economic development projects, working in communities, and so I'm going to share that with you today, and, and that's really the, the lens that I come from. Uh, when I talked to Sonia about this group, she said it's going to be folks from diverse disciplines and backgrounds, and that's really helpful, too, because we get all these different perspectives, and um, as you get into food systems work, you realize you need every type of brain in the, in the, in, in the mix. And so, uh, as I said, it, it, I learn from all of these experiences as well. So... Um, why local food systems and why food systems work? And it's, it's very complex work, isn't it? I mean, it's got all these different elements. Um, and, and for many people, it's really about relocalization. So getting back to something we used to have, which not in a nostalgic sort of way, but how do we create systems that are probably not new to localities and the relocalization of that. It's people in this room, I'm sure, are familiar with how we got to the food system we have now, the shift in agricultural production, uh, the increase in, in imports and in importing of food, um, large-scale agriculture, these real significant changes and complex changes. It's not easy just to do three or four bullet points on it. It's complex. It's the way in which households deal and, and produce their own food, gender differences that change dynamics of, within households as well. Just a changing spectrum since, but we can really point to World War II on, on how our food system has changed. And it's, it's, it's not like, um, certainly not like it used to be. But to keep in mind as we talk about food systems work is this issue of, the, of farm policy, food and, and farm policy over the last 50 years. So this for the nutritionists in the room, this probably is the, the baseline, right? This is what, where we can start to mark things and the differences in production and the type of food that we have and um, the convenience around the type of food that's produced today. So the farm policy is really focused on lowering the costs of, of our commodities, so soybeans, corn, just you know, dropping those, those prices significantly, where at the same time, we don't see any of that sort of subsidy or support for um, fruits and vegetables, that we don't, especially crops, don't get this same kind of input and support. And, and our farm policy um, has really you know, contributed to this increase in the, in the healthy foods, right, the cost of the healthy foods, particularly over the last 20 years, we can see this sort of 40% increase in the cost of healthy foods. So the, the, the sweet stuff, the stuff that's not good for us, the, our, our diet of, of junk food is the cheap stuff, and it's what's most readily available, and it's the things that last the longest on the shelves. And, and unfortunately, this is, um, consumes all parts of uh, where you purchase food, whether it's at a convenience store or, or your grocery store as well. So here we are with a, 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 an epidemic, an obesity epidemic. CDC is, has this, I'm sure you all know, that great sort of set of PowerPoints that take you through to this point where we have these incredible obesity rates and, and um, sort of the increased size of, of American adults. Uh, you know, if we look at this map, we can see the high poverty states, of course, where we're going to see the greatest obesity and the greatest um, issues around diabetes and health issues, health disparities, overlay with poverty. So farm and food policy is not health policy. And so this is where we kind of get to, for folks interested in food systems work, connecting the dots. What does it mean? What is a food system? How do you do it? How do you build it? Um, Lots of definitions on what local is. If you ask uh, we'll ha how many people in this room will have different definitions of it. But what we do know is that um, it's about place. I mean, place really matters. Geography matters. Foodways matter in place. Um, there's consensus that it's about a sh very short supply chain, so it's not that long travel. 
um, uh, from, from production to the plate. And for me, these last pieces are really critical, that it's about the connection, uh, mutual trust, reciprocity, this embeddedness <laughs> in community that you start to see and you can measure uh, you know, this change uh, and this connectedness when you start to look at local food systems. So this is kind of the, um, the background to what I want to share to you, that, that this goal of local food systems work is around this connection of producers and consumers. Where's your food come from? Know your farmer. Know your food. Um, uh, what we do know is that it improves local economies, and so this is an important part of the work I do is how do we measure and understand what that ripple effect is when, when food is produced and, and stays in, in a radius in a community. Um, important to this are sustainable food practices, which kind of makes us look differently about how food is produced as, as opposed to um, sort of a bigger agricultural scale. And then these ideas around healthy communities and how do you create that and what do you do with the um, access for folks regardless of socioeconomic background. Uh, so that's sort of, you all know that, this is, you, you, I'm sure this is things you probably teach for many of you, but that gets us to this work that I was doing in North Carolina. So I wanted to share that with you because that's how, you know, I kind of just learned from jumping in and doing work. And that's how I've learned what I can do in Mississippi. So I moved to Mississippi a year ago. And so um, this work I've been doing for about 10 years in North Carolina. So let me just tell you a little bit about this part of the world. Um, probably lots of parallels to South Carolina, I'm sure. Um, this part here where we are, th this is where the food system is that I developed in southeastern North Carolina. Um, the university I was working in is here in New Hanover County. This, of course, is the Atlantic Ocean. And here is Wilmington, North Carolina. And a lot of this work is in the rural communities in this 11-county area. It's one of the highest poverty parts of North Carolina, uh, persistent poverty counties. Um, and those are counties with poverty rates over 20%. It's a measure of time, right? So for over a 30-year period, these are deeply embedded um, counties of poverty. Um, and it's, um, when I actually began this work, it was not around food. It was around uh, textile job loss, textile manufacturing job loss, of which South Carolina is very familiar. Um, this one county, Robinson County, um, right here, uh, home of the Lumbee Native American group, um, interesting county, had about, has about 33% Native American and probably 25, 26, 27% African American, uh, 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 probably, it's, it's almost an even split with a grow, fast growing Latino population and a traditional rural white population. So it's an interesting county. Uh, it's, it's consistently of the top three counties in poverty uh, of its size in the nation, so it's a high poverty county. And I was actually doing some work there um, around this textile manufacturing job loss. This county lost 10,000 textile jobs since the implementation of NAFTA. So we were documenting that. We were interviewing people, trying to understand what happens when work disappears. And we organized and, and took um, displaced workers up to Washington, D.C. We gave testimony to Congress. We organized a congressional briefing, and we had three busloads of folks who went up for a day trip. And we, you know, told, we gave, had data. Told, I gave them the numbers, and people told the stories. And wow, it was a powerful moment. And then we drove home. We were like, what on earth are we going to do now? Because you, know, that, that's, you can't do just that, although that's really important. So we started a sector analysis, and we wanted to understand what the challenges were with the loss of 10,000 manufacturing jobs. We worked with economists and we looked at sort of the multiplier effect of that loss and calculated, uh, I think it was like a $4.5 billion loss in a five-county area, you know, taxes, jobs, you know, peripheral jobs, because those 10,000 manufacturing jobs left. So we, I, I sort of took on, I was working with a community organizer there, and he took on the job loss piece, working with displaced textile workers who were primarily women. Uh, this was the Converse, Mac, Converse sneaker plant and things like that. Um, and so I took on the agricultural sector because we noticed that 
um, we started looking at that sector and small family farms were disappearing, but also very difficult for that population to get into any sort of buying system and to sell their product and to, to have a livelihood. So that's how this project was born. And so we had the logic that here on the coast, that this is sort of, if you've been to Wilmington, it's similar to Charleston, but nothing is grand, right? So it's got a nice little historic district. It's got the, coast, it's got the river and the coastline. But, um, and you know, people typically, for a long time, were going there for the fried shrimp and that kind of experience, right? But we knew we had a developing restaurant scene, and we knew we had chefs who were interested in local. It was just a little bit of this around 2006. Um, and then we knew we had this product here from small farmers that we had been talking to uh, in these rural counties. And we thought, this is Highway 76, go straight into Wilmington. Okay, maybe we can start thinking, what, what can we do? How do we create this system? So I actually began this as a project out of the Department of Sociology. And so students were involved. Um, we, we hired VISTA service members. We began a food system out of the Department of Sociology. Um, and talking to Bev today and just kind of reminded me of this, that you know how things begin and where they're situated. But it grew. And um, so that's what I'm going to tell you about, how this system grew. And we, we had a lot of uh, grant writing going on, a lot of developing partnerships with um, public and private folks. I mean, it, it requires all of that to create a system. And so these are just kind of the funding streams and the key partners, and there are many more that I, I haven't included. Um, but just to give you a sense of how, how elaborate it is. So that diagram of the food system, all the pieces, right? You got um, production, supply, demand, um, access, all these things have to be going on almost at the same time. And that's kind of what I've learned is that you just throw it up there and it's just got to be going all at the same time because they're all related. So let me share with you the different pieces that we developed and then, and then talk about this as a system. So the family farm, loss of family farm, um, Average age of farmers in the United States is around 57, 58. This is not any different in southeastern North Carolina. Um, older growers with family connections to farm. Um, <coughs> USDA calls these folks limited resource, socially disadvantaged farmers. Um, lots of problems over the years and, and difficulty in maintaining a livelihood. Um, no markets, right? So it was a lot of sell on the side of the road or if there's a farmer's market, but no institutional buying, no sort of connection of, you know, if you have supply, how do you get this sort of system going? And so we spent a lot of time working, uh, our partner, key partner, and this was Extension, North Carolina Extension, um, and thinking about what those inputs were, what sort of high tunnels, you know, what, what do they need to build their farm capacity, how to gr extend growing seasons. Um, we had lots of farmer chef meetings, like like speed dating meetings. We'd have an event, and <laughs> we'd have the chef and the farmer, and you kind of just go and say, "Well, what do you need? What can grow?" And we just we just started developing relationships. Um, uh, we food safety is a big part of this, and if you're doing any of this work at all, you know that food safety gap certifications are critical. So. We started ensuring that the farmers that we were working with were getting at least sort of tier one gap training. Um, and then we've moved on to other bigger pieces of training, farm training. But it was, it, it was really building that capacity for small scale farmers. How do you do that? Um, and that involved early, should we have a cooperative? You know, how, different sort of understandings of how this would play out. Eventually, it became a 501c3. We had lots of thinking about that. And that was really from a, a funder sort of pushing it. You need to be a 501c3. That's kind of how we got that recognition. Um, our big funders in this process were the tobacco buyout folks, the Golden Leaf Foundation, um, Tobacco Trust Foundation in North Carolina. And so that was interesting um, where we got our support you know, to make this happen. 
um, and demand. We had to, so we had the, the coast where people are coming for fried shrimp, and that certainly probably hasn't gone away. But Wilmington's sort of taken that shift, and it's you know looking a little more like Charleston, or you know trying to have this local food scene. So, how do you build that demand? And and actually, it was it's very difficult to do that, and and that is a culture shift. And there, you know, you've got nutrition marketing people, you got lots of people who can help you figure that out. But we had we built we started branding we buy local campaign. Uh, why buy local? Why is it important? Social messaging, billboards, um, these are our bumper stickers, get fresh with your farmer, branding feast down east. Um, and then, you know, really thinking about what does this mean when these, these food dollars stay, what happens, and plenty of research. And we, we documented, others have documented that indeed it does increase employment, it does add to the economy, that these are important pieces building this demand and helping consumers know why this is important. Um, we started working with our institutions, so farm to school, working with child nutrition directors on sourcing locally. It's very difficult for them to source locally. Uh, farm to chef program, working with the chefs, the high-end restaurants in particular. Um, this logo right here, if you go anywhere in Wilmington, you see Feast Down East. That means those chefs are buying at least 10% of their product from local farms. And we go and we verify every month who you're buying from. Typically, they're buying from Feast Down East, which is good, but they don't have to. We just want them buying locally. Tell us where they're buying. Um, at the same time, and I think this is an important story here, is that we had a statewide initiative. And some of the best work in North Carolina is being done by um, Center for Environmental Farming Systems at North Carolina State. And uh, they, they have a comprehensive sort of understanding of local food. So that work's been going on at the state level. We, we work in tandem with them and, with, and, and informed by them and vice versa through learning communities on how you build food systems and what that looks like. So they had a 10% campaign farm to fork 10% campaign. And so this was really helpful in our work. This going on at the state level, we can dovetail with that and down in the southeast. Um, Food Corps, we were one of the, North Carolina is one of the uh, uh, inaugural sort of launching of Food Corps. And so we had, we have two, two Food Corps service members. Anybody, everybody familiar with Food Corps? It's a federal program. It's like um, Peace Corps, but with food. And uh, so you have service members who don't get paid a lot, but they, they're young and happy, and they go in and do great things in schools. And so they're based at schools, and they teach kids about where food comes from and how to grow it and what to do um, in the school. And so this is, to me, a very critical piece. The Food Corps program could use a lot of money. It's a federal program. And if we had Food Corps volunteers in all states making some sort of comprehensive efforts. I think that would be pretty fantastic. Um, and then campus dining. We have a really good farm to university program. Um, this didn't happen overnight. It took many years. But now um, one of our biggest uh, purchasers is the University of North Carolina Wilmington through their uh, Airmark. And so had a have a champion who is the head of campus dining who brings farmers in and, and chefs will do their product right there and students come and do tastings and uh, so it's a really comprehensive piece that uh, that has really grown over the last several years to to um, sort of develop this farm to university program for us and University of North Carolina Wilmington um, farm to military program is very difficult uh, it's procured by Department of Defense, and so those, that's not been easy, and, and North Carolina State's been really good at sort of chiseling away how do we get product into the, the military to the commissaries. Uh, you can be a grower right next to Fort Bragg, and you can't get your product into Fort Bragg. So how do you work on that? What are those procurement bids that happen? What we've learned in a lot of the research is that um, you know, these are Department of Defense, for example, a peach. A peach procurement bid is for a California peach, which is a very big peach. 
North Carolina peaches are very small. So there's no way a North Carolina peach can get into that procurement because it's just too small. So it's these kind of regulations that we've been sort of chiseling away at and try to figure out how, how to purchase. So all of this slide right here is about the challenges of purchasing for institutions. It's very, very difficult. Um, it's, it's you wouldn't think it would be as difficult. But these are the kind of procurement issues that we have to look at. So, but we've done this to, in, in southeastern North Carolina through this food system. We've, we've got to a place where we've got sort of regular buying along these lines. One of the big things we learned in this work is that distribution is uh, one of the biggest problems. And so um, when we first went to Golden Leaf Foundation, we asked if we could have multiple hubs. We knew that these food hubs or aggregation centers were really critical. And our folks uh, who participate in Feast Down East um, processing distribution program come from a 50-mile radius. That's what local is to us. And that just worked out because that's as far as that farmer was willing to drive and drop off product and then get back and, and be profitable for them. So we have a food hub. And this is in partnership with the town of Burgaw. And it's, it's just off I-40, and it's a little bitty hub. Um, and it's based at a, um, the town of Burgaw uh, train depot, the historic train depot. Um, so there's a platform there, and it's a, it's, one of the, it's a beautiful train depot. It's architecturally gorgeous. They restored it. It's one of the oldest wooden depots in the nation. Um, but so we have a processing distribution center there. USDA has a commercial kitchen there. So this is a true town partnership, right, in really making that happen. We have flash freezing capacity there. Uh, Burgaw is in Pender County, which is one of the highest blueberry-producing places in the nation. So we flash freeze blueberries, um, but also we just move food. Food comes in on Wednesday, and it goes out on Thursday to the Wilmington institutions in, in the area, in the Levin County area. So um, let me just quickly show you a little video that kind of shows you what happens at the flash freezer, town of Burkhard. Yeah, I can't keep going. Can you show me how? No. <laughs> oh, thanks. Okay, so this is just a short video. It shows you a little bit about that food hub.
we have to give them all the support that we can. When you see their products at the grocery store, buy them. When you see them at the market, shake their hand, introduce yourself, and say thank you. Please keep farming. There's so much about working with the earth itself. This therapeutic game. It's grounding in a world of chaos. And at some point, you know, we make choices of is it about money or is it about happiness? And I hope that people will decide that farming is about happiness. So that was a piece that we worked with Lowe's Food. I'm not going to be able to get back. I'm just technologically challenged. And so we worked with Lowe's Food on a CSA box. Um, and uh, you have Lowe's Food here in South Carolina. No. Uh, I think maybe over on the coast you do. But so this, you, you saw, you got a, a glimpse there of we outfitted two box cars. That's where the processing distribution is. So in in line with the town of Bergal, they wanted it aesthetically in line with what they do. So we got two uh, CSA box cars. Um, is that is C? That's not the. What's the rail line? It's not CSA. It's CS, CSX. Yeah. Right. Um, and so we. And so that's. And so this is a small scale operation. Um, probably uh, on our best years, we're around four hundred or five hundred thousand uh, dollars in sales, and so um, it's uh, certainly not like the operation down near Charleston, which I think they're pushing probably um, probably getting close to nine hundred thousand. I don't know. Does anyone work with them there in South? They're pretty. They, they're, they've got scale. They've got a lot of scale. Um, but this is a. It, this serves the needs of about twenty-five growers in the region. And as I said, it's in a 50-mile radius. And so um, we have a variety of product that's coming in. But this didn't happen. I mean, this was many years of this piece, right? But we knew that this food hub is something that this is really where the 501c3 is. We knew that we needed this distribution piece. And so we're building capacity of farmers. We're building um, interest and demand. And, you know, how do you pull that together. And so this was, um, this food hub is the one piece of the food systems work that we're doing. Um, so as this work got going, it was clear to me that we were meeting the needs of a middle class consumer. The consumer that likes whole foods and likes to go and read about the farmers, which we did a lot of that, the narratives, the stories about the farmers. But um, as someone who's interested in poverty alleviation, that didn't sit well with me. And I said, well, wait a minute, we've got, we've got this disjointed system developing. And, you know, so we started saying, well, how do we, what do we do about access and food insecurity? And, and how do we address this through the food system? And I had been working for many years with uh, Wilmington Public Housing. I created a, um, a community campus there. So we, my sociology, it was public sociology, I just had students meet there and we met, they had a year-long program at, in essence, in partnership with public housing. And so we had a really good relationship through research that we had been doing, research and practice in the community. So we started um, a fresh market and we really wanted to get that product from limited resource growers to limited resource consumers. And this Fresh Market Project has EBT card swipe capacity. Um, we did a training program, and we continue with training programs so that leaders that are coming out of the uh, neighborhood, the community, are trained to do the buying and the EBT use, and they, they run the fresh market. So, you know, from the literature, sort of the uh, international liter literature on food sovereignty, that's kind of the idea that we incorporated. So how do people get control over their own access to food. And so um, this is a pretty broad program. Uh, one community has been more successful than another. We sort of moved it to another community. So P Wilmington has eight public housing communities, and so we're in about four or five of them right now. One is particularly strong. Um, but it's through that commitment from the, the neighborhood, from the community members, that is making it strong. We have um, nutrition information cooking programs. We've had a gleaning program so that community members can go out to the farm, meet the farmers, the growers, glean, have a meal, and come back. And so you know, you're making that connection 
from, uh, in terms of knowing the farm and what's happening. Uh, funding for this has come through the county health department, um, from obviously public housing uh, and their inputs and, and in-kind donations. And then the city and a task force, uh, Blue Ribbon Task Force on Gang Violence put some money into it as well. So it's about building community in uh, high need, low resource communities through food access. Um, and so that one, it's a great project. It has moments of strengths and moments of weaknesses and it's continued vulnerability. Um, and I think it has obviously a lot to do with um, place and, and, and ability to work. Uh, in fact, we're working on a paper right now to sort of address some of the issues that have arisen there, but also the, what's working too, you know, so it's really working. Throughout this work, policy work is incredibly important. And this is where a lot of my attention over the last couple of years has turned. Um, so we've been targeting regional and county planners to really think about what food systems work is and how they can contribute into the planning of, of, of their um, cities, counties. And this, we were really pleased in 2015 to work with um, on the statewide comprehensive economic development strategy. So finally see this in language in North Carolina. Um, and this is not through our work alone, it's through this sort of overall uh, North Carolina um, goal of, of working on food systems. But this disconnect, we can read it together, disconnect exists in many communities between local farmers and consumers for fresh, healthy, affordable food. The state's food production and distribution networks are not coordinated or expansive enough to adequately and affordably produ produ provide local food options to many of the state's residences. So we have an initiative that is focused on this um, that's in part of a long-term strategic planning. Um, one of the pieces that came out of some of this work is a house bill, bipartisan house bill on convenience stores. And part of that language in that bill was to um, have some sort of access with local farmers into convenience stores through um, displays, through having access to food right there. And so that bill was recently passed, I believe it was this past summer, um, but it was a bipartisan bill um, where people were clear that this is a targeted area where we need to work with convenience stores. So I don't know how many of you are familiar with Samina Raj's work. How many of you know her work? To me, this is some of the best work I'm seeing in the, in the United States. Um, and she's a planner. She, um, uh, in fact, I'm excited she's coming to Mississippi State in January. We, we had her speak at our conference um, in North Carolina uh, last year. But Samina's work is really good. And, she, and I just wanted to share it with you because it points to some really Im important things for people to think about in food systems work. A survey, and I want to say Samina did this survey, but it was with American Planning Association members in 2014, and she had a subsample, a sample there of um, local, local planners, managers, and regional um, planners. Uh, this is what they, this is what she found from this um, survey in 2014. There's interest in doing this work by planners, but. There are not too many people involved in it across the nation, very little awareness of it, and that those who are doing it are involved in some sort of regulatory pra practices, um, eliminating some of those barriers. So this is, the, you know, this is the takeaway from this survey, that people are interested, planners are interested in this, community folks are interested in this, they just don't know what to do or how to do it. And so I think it's really important when we do this work in food systems that we constantly have planners at the at the table yeah no like um uh, chicken ordinances in a local community or urban farming planning you know those kind of things like what you know what are the barriers that prevent that kind of work going so what she's doing, she has um, the Growing Food Connections. She got some funding to really look at this across the nation. So if you go to her website, you can see sort of she sees these places of promise across the nation where this food systems work, this is fully integrated work is happening. 
Um, and she sort of points to the work in Erie uh, County, New York. And here I've just highlighted what she's talking about. And I think you can kind of hear from our work in Southeast or North Carolina, that's kind of the stuff planning. Um, in Erie, you've, you've got at the county level, farmland preservation planning, community-wide food assessment, county sustainability plan, new land use plan by the city, so that you've got, the, you've got these planning pieces that are in place, and once they're in place, you know, you've got a timeline to make these things happen. Um, uh, physical, you know, you've got cold storage for Food Hub, county and state are putting money into that. Commercial kitchen, city and state, you know, what are these pieces that you need, these infrastructure pieces? The regulations, the zoning codes. Um, I was in, um, we've been doing focus groups across Mississippi, and I was in Oxford, where the University of Mississippi is, and I was taught, thankfully, at the, the local food sort of focus group, and there was a planner there, and he was talking about, well, I'm on the phone right now during this focus group because we're working on these zoning regulations because land around Oxford, Mississippi is so expensive. And so these farmers who are around Oxford are being pushed out because they can't, they just can't afford it. So they're trying to get some sort of land uh, preservation laws, some zoning laws, uh, developers are taking over, you know. And so it's, these are the kind of things that people need to be focused on and working on. Um, Fiscal support, grants to farmers cooperatives, county and state put money in, um, city budget lines for farmers markets, so um, governance, city, food, city and county food policy councils, um, public health and planning and staff participation by the county and the city, and then programs like some of the fresh market and that kind of thing I just told you about. Um, they've got County health choice that the health department's putting money into uh, youth employment, urban agriculture. So, the example from Erie County, where Samina's kind of using it as one of the many um, places across the nation where we see these public private partnerships, we've got planners involved in this work. Reminded me, you know, listening to you today, Bev, on the food share, I mean, you've got lots of those pieces happening. It's really exciting public-private money that's going into, um, and planners starting to think about this as well. So this has, policy <laughs> comes from a lot of this work, and that's got to be at the center of, um, of any food systems development, because that's where you can start tackling health disparities, health I mean access to healthy food, um, these food desert issues. And I, th I think it was Samina who said, you can't focus on food deserts alone. You have to think about this system. It's got to be the bigger piece, all these little things. Um, it's not just those, those projects in isolation. Um, so here I am, a year ago, moved to Mississippi. I'm a native Mississippian, so it wasn't that hard <laughs> going back to Mississippi. But um, I went back, well, yeah, I hadn't been living there since I was a kid. So it was interesting to go back and look at a state that hadn't changed a lot since I left as a kid. Some things had, but poverty, it's remarkable, right? We all know Mississippi's the highest or lowest on any variable that one looks at. Um, oh, yeah, right. We do fight with you on that a little bit. Um, but 90% of the food in this agricultural state, the food that's consumed, is imported. Now, I learned later that this is probably common for most states. Um, I think the, the problem with this, though, is that this is an agricultural state, and the agriculture in Mississippi is commodity production that doesn't have a lot of labor attached to it. It's, you know, it's, um, it's nothing you want to eat, right? It's agriculture, but you're not going to eat it. Um, and if it is something you're going to eat, it's going to be exported. Um, this one county, Issaquina County, right here. Where's my little, there. This county, Issaquina, on the Mississippi River, has no grocery store. Uh, 1,300 people in the county have no grocery store. My understanding is Holmes County, and so the Mississippi Delta is just incredibly poor. Um, and we have over 50 counties of persistent poverty. Um, so over 82 counties. So 
This is long-term, deep embedded poverty, right? Places with no grocery store. Uh, Isquina doesn't even have a Dollar General, and that's where most people <laughs> get their food now who, are, um, who have, live in high poverty areas. So um, the highest rates of obesity, diabetes, and, and this is our ground zero for understanding food and food systems. So I came back and I was thinking, do I want to go start another food hub? No, I do not. <laughs> um, but I do want students and, and researchers and faculty and people doing research around food systems work. And so my thinking is that we really need this opportunity to, to see what's going on. We went around and, as a good academic trying to find out what's going on, what's happening, what are the barriers, what are the opportunities, what are the capacity in the state. So we've been having these meetups, and I've been doing that with Mississippi State Extension. Um, and, it, you know, so here's sort of my brain at work. What do we do? How do we do this? It's not that big a state. There are three million people. From top to bottom is four hours. From side to side is another two. So it's not like a North Carolina, and still can't get South Carolina in my head and the geography, but... Um, it is a manageable state in that sense, in, in terms of moving food and building capacity. Um, we have some, we, there's a Mississippi Food Policy Council that's been working hard for several years to really develop and think about policy and how to pull this together in the state. There's seven food core service members in Mississippi. No, actually there are ten. They're at seven sites. And that's and I can't tell you enough how great the program of Food Corps is, and I hope South Carolina gets some. Um, uh, the, I started the Mississippi Food Insecurity Project because I wanted to start documenting and understanding food insecurity in the state. Um, Mississippi Sustainable Agriculture Network has been at work for several years trying to think about agriculture sustainably and, and livelihoods around it. And then we have a great food hub that's developed in Jackson, in the capital. And Jackson's a high poverty area, um, but this food hub is working with limited resource farmers. Uh, they have obtained um, an enormous space that's been sort of a donation of sorts from um, the city and from University of Mississippi Medical Center. And so they've got a, a great operation for moving, aggregating, sorting. Uh, they'll have a, a, a line for organic products. So they, they're building a food hub. Um, and they're working with um, low-income populations as well in terms of food access. So we've got pieces across the state. Um, and we're identifying what we can build upon. So how, you know, how do we build this system in Mississippi? in a high poverty state with low food security. Um, so Mississippi State is working on a local food extension program and learning from what's happened at North Carolina State to really think about how can those agents in those 82 counties um, work toward a, a really comprehensive food system uh, outreach. That's what extension's great at, is outreach in communities. Um, we're talking, it has an excellent community college system, um, over 10,000 students in one community college uh, system alone. They're met, I think there's six of them. But here you can see um, this work by Rosenfeld. I don't know if anyone's familiar with it, but it's really talking about how you can do job training programs through community college, food and, and farm-related job technical training programs. Um, there are several high school culinary arts programs, um, university health nutrition programs, rural health scholars, food systems clusters like the food hub that I mentioned, um, foundation money interested in working in food, working in health disparities, uh, SNAP-Ed program, um, Alcorn State, which is the um, 1898 land grant in Mississippi, based way down here. I'm based way up here, but these two land grants um, have opportunity to work together for socially disadvantaged farmers, and a new center has just been in place there. Working on community food grants, beginning farmer and rancher grants, um, this Merle Evers Williams Institute for Elimination of Health Disparities has just begun. We're in like our 
eighth month. And so we've got two portfolios, one about around health disparities and one around local foods. And so we're, we're putting those efforts together. Um, and then Mississippi Food Policy Council. So there are lots of pieces there. And so I wanted to, we're, we're just sort of pulling together researchers to, to see what we can do and learn around these key areas in the state. And so labor is a huge issue and food systems folks don't think about it enough. And Dr. Gina Mendez is working on this and she's looking at, you know, what do we need in communities? Uh, if we have a collective of farmers who want to grow and expand that work, what do we need? What, what's a living wage? How do you create that? Um, what, is the, what are the housing needs? Uh, so that we can get that going and, and get that food into the food hub. We've got food security uh, folks working on this, Drs. Johnson, McKinley, Oliver, Vance O'Leap, uh, and grad students, PhD students, uh, Carr and Trin, looking at community college food insecurity. Mm -hmm. So are they trying to create a, a system like food share in Mississippi, especially Isaac Quina? They're trying to create a food share, a, a program similar to food share in Isaquina County. Mm mm. No, we we have nothing in Isaquina County right now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, looking at SNAP, we've got we've got access to SNAP data, so we're trying to understand those patterns, what's going on. We've got the agency data on that, and uh, looking at local food systems development. So. Right now, we've got a research agenda going on, but what my hope is is that we really pull together this in an umbrella network, and that's really what I'm working on right now. So how do you create infrastructure through some sort of organizational umbrella to tie these pieces in? So as we look at Mississippi, we see different pots of money coming in, but then those pots of money go away, and there's nothing behind it. There's nothing there. Um, so you'll have USDA money coming in for two years, and then it's gone. And then, you know, and so what did you learn? What happened there? What, you know, how do we continue that? And those projects simply dissolve. And so my goal right now is to build this infrastructure um, by creating some sort of entity that is pulling together the researchers, the folks on the ground doing some of these programs, the planners, the policy folks, um, through a learning community that's sort of housing all of this in this small state so that we can address these critical issues. Um, what I'm learning in all of this is you can't do it alone <laughs> and you shouldn't reinvent the wheel. And so the more we can build learning communities um, at the local level, the regional, the states, and in indeed internationally, nationally and internationally, the stronger this work is gonna be. Um, USDA is committed to local foods. You, you see that in the funding streams and the way in which these RFPs are coming out. Um, the Food and Agriculture Organization with the United Nations changed their nutrition portfolio to include local foods, small farming. This, this, is, this is where we're going. Uh, and, and so we have pieces, both nationally, internationally, locally, but we need these uh, efforts to be consolidated because if you're on the ground doing this work, you know how exhausting it is and how uh, overwhelming it is. And so the more we can build these learning communities, the, the, the quicker we can do this work and get it done. So um, let me open it up for questions. I believe that is my last slide. So I have a simple question, yeah. but it may lead to other things. Where's Boulevard County? Boulevard, it's in the Delta. Okay, so, so Mound Bayou is there. Yeah. And that's one of the two places that uh, H. Jack Geiger convinced the federal government to use as a community health center mm -hmm. prototype back in the civil rights era. That's right. So I'm wondering if you've made any connections to that, to that federally qualified health centers. There was a woman uh, by the name of Darcy Friedman who worked here for a while. We oh, set really? up a, a, a farmer's market at a community health center down in Orangeburg. She's now up in Cleveland. Okay. But we've been thinking and writing about the connection between the community health centers and the connection to things like, you know, the, the uh, extension program and yeah. stuff like that. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because that's a kind of a natural place 
to connect a lot of what you're doing because the, as you probably know, the community health centers program or centers, yeah, centers pro movement started because of the goal of, of creating economic opportunity and community mm -hmm. development. Right, and I'm not sure what exactly is going on in Mount Bayou, although I know uh, there are some colleagues who are doing some health-related work there, right? So Mount Bayou, Baptist Town, which is in Greenwood, um, these are other communities in the Delta that are historically some of the oldest communities in the nation where freed slaves could purchase land, and Mount Bayou and Baptist Town are those two that I can think of. Mm -hmm. So there, um, we are beginning work in Baptist Town, which is in great, a little bit closer to our drive over, but um, connecting uh, through community foods projects um, this sort of integrated food systems so work. Just an artifact. I mean, a, no, a I think there is, right, that's very, yes, that's yes, very good. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Thanks for your talk. Yeah. Um, I have a question related to uh, your experience at building the system in North Carolina. Right. And have you addressed like how to prevent or respond to ev events like uh, extreme weather? And I'm curious of the focus groups you mentioned, if this is a concern of farmers. Well, sadly, um, the North Carolina, the Hurricane Matthew, one of our strongest growers has just whole crop just got wiped out, a whole season just wiped out. So we don't have, no, and, but I think um, this is a really good point about planning and what these um, uh, emergency sort of plans are. And yes, it is concern of farmers, but uh, for these small growers primarily, that's it. It's, they're, you know, I think we've had a, um, a fundraiser for that particular farmer, but that's not a mechanism, you know. But yes, this is clearly their concern, absolutely. Um, but we have not done anything on that, and that's got to be part of this food system's work, absolutely. Yeah. With that example, is there no, they have no crop insurance? Yeah, I'm sure he does, yeah. Right, but he's a small grower. I mean, he's like 40 acres and um, had hoped to get down to 10 because he's an organic grow and he was doing really well, had niche markets that could get him profitability at 10 acres. Um, he, you know, so he's trying to get that now. It's, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it seems like you're further along in North Carolina than you are in Mississippi yeah. in terms of progress. Is that the case? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. And is that, do you think, is that partly because, like, funding, like, you're able to... It's easier to secure funding? In well, no. I, I think, just to reiterate, that um, the work, this is a slow-moving train, right? And so in North Carolina, we started this work in 2002. Okay. And so the Food Hub started in 2009. Okay. And, and it's still not at a, a margin where it could sustain folks, right? And, and that's with funding coming in and everything else. And I should all keep saying it worked in tandem with what was going on around the state. So it was a weird and great confluence of a local food awareness in a state. Um, in Mississippi, those nodal points, that's what's happening. <laughs> that is it. And so um, there is, there's not a lot of local food development. Okay. And, um, could we still have a question and take a few others and I'll come, come back to okay. you? Okay. Yes, thank you. So with the fresh markets within yeah. Mount Cassidy, you said that there's one in particular that's been quite successful. Do you know what's driving Leadership. That? Yeah, leadership. And um, it, it's uh, <laughs> it, and it's community investment. And so, but I, I can't, I think it's that champion who gets it. Um, and that leadership training, I should say, went for many years, right? And it's still ongoing and, and that particular leader is a Vista, an old Vista service member, right? So she's old school community organizing. She gets it. Uh, and she's probably in her 60s. And um, so she, uh, she's great at organizing, building community. She loves her community. She's invested in it. So she sees how this is important. And, and it was really interesting because, you know, the food day events, I'm sure you had them here, the national event, we would have them. And, and so I'd have Joan come and talk because she could talk about the fresh market and what's going on there. And so, but it would be a whole day of workshops and training and, you know, someone talking about genetically modified food, sometimes someone talking about organic food, all these workshops. 
And I remember at the end of the day, Joan was like, can you believe this poison we've been eating? And she's, you know, incensed that this is how her food system is. And to the demand that comes out of that particular market is for the organic product. They want the organic product. They're not, you know, so it's, you know, it's this interesting how given opportunity to be versed in different whatever, you know, milieu uh, and this, these um, sort of leadership training pieces um, has changed the whole culture of that particular market. And the things, the challenges, and, and as I said, we're, we're writing on this right now, you know, are around place that, you know, the difficulties of, um, you know, a high crime neighborhood, for example, or people saying, why are you doing this? And, you know, why are you part of this? And, you know, so, some sort of intimidation sometimes. And so we're sort of trying to document that and see what those, those pieces um, and those inequalities in food systems are part of. Yeah. I, I wanted to, let me see if I can formulate this question. I wanted to ask you about the role of research and researchers in this. I mean, from, from your description, it's easy to see how having academics and researchers involved with other partners can help with the formative work and development and all this. But I, but I think my question is sort of at the larger, the larger issues around this kind of endeavor. I mean, if, if one believes that this is the way we have to go, and, um, then the question is, how do we how do we have this happen in other places? How do we make it faster? How do we get it done more efficiently so it doesn't take yeah. 20 years? Oh, no. and, and, that, and so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about the role of sort of evidence building and evidence sharing around the enterprise of trying yeah. to make this more ridiculous. Well, I think, I mean, we know that funders need the evidence, right? I mean, that's, uh, you're building that into every grant that you're writing. You have to say what's happened and why, you know, so you've got to have that base. And, and um, I, I mean, I, I think it's, it's instrumental in, for me, the answer is the learning community. So this Southeastern Consortium, it's a monthly call, and it's a monthly call that is making me say, oh, wow, you know, I have been so immersed in this and I haven't seen that. Or, and it's a call about research, really, right? Basically, what policy briefs we can develop and things like that. But that, that helps me say, okay, well, I'm doing this here. And, you know, we had a conversation today about GAP. And you're like, oh, I had no idea about group GAP or something. You know, so these learning communities are invaluable. And in truth, these, a lot of these learning communities are around academia and around research and around um, people trying to understand these bigger questions, you know, so if this happens, what, is, what are the implications here and, and the documentation and that sort of thing. So I feel like the work in Mississippi, in many ways, I feel like I can jumpstart 10 years later because I know, I know all this. I know what I can, you know, place matters. It's going to be different how it rolls out. But I already know I have a learning curve behind me and I, I have, you know, 10 years of working with researchers on how it plays out in different places. And so, you know, I was reading the other day about what goes on in Vermont. Well, Vermont's a whole different world and different animal, but the labor issues are the same. You know, I mean, what can we learn from these experiences? So for me, the research is critical, um, uh, but I, I think the practice is the most important learning experience, and documenting that is, is going to save people a lot of time. Is that what you're helping with that big question? Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm curious about, I mean, you just gave an example where, okay, so, you know, you had experience in North Carolina, so you go to Mississippi, and now you're able to do that in a more solid way. I guess if others in other places wanted to do this, is there, do you feel like there's a, a sharing of knowledge that would help them be able to do that also in an accelerated way. Yeah, I do. And I think that we're seeing enough of those sort of learning communities develop. Yeah. Um, my thing right now, and we were talking about earlier, is on all, I think on all these grants that we put in. So if we're working together, we need this little tag. We're going to do a webinar with the folks in South Carolina, and we're going to, you know, and it's, it's not going to be cost out. It'll be our time who commits to that. But I don't know how else we're going to get through um, the, these changes that are needed in the way, and the health, health outcome. This is ultimately about health outcomes, right? Um, the the well, way in which. And what we were talking about, I mean, within the southeastern region, there's tons of learning. 
right. um, arachnid systems work that researchers are part of all of those that didn't exist even a year ago. I just went to a conference in New Orleans, and it was, uh, but it was ag economists primarily, and they were it was local food systems and economic development. It was kind of you know how you how you do the math to to document uh, the multiplier effect, you know, for or when you keep food dollars in a region, and they were you know I learned so much. I mean, it was it was focused primarily on ag econ, but. You know that was that same learning community from folks from across the food food spectrum. Food systems work takes everybody in the food system to be at the table. So um, you're anticipating my question, which links to, to Ed's, and that is, do you have economists involved in this? Yeah, so yeah. The agricultural economists are one category, but also the health economists. Yeah. So those that's really what. I mean, that's where the argument comes in, at least on the policy side. Sure. Now, yeah. the argument for, you know, in an, I don't know that this would be going to the NIH, but in a study section, right. might not rest there. But certainly, if you want to make a difference in the world, it's got to, to go there. And I would imagine, you know, if you started working on comparative systems in Vermont yeah. versus your place, it's pretty similar in some ways. I yeah. mean, rural Vermont's very poor. It's yeah. a state of about eight, 9,000 square miles. You're 48,000 square mm -hmm. miles. We're 32,000 square oh, miles. Smaller. Their population's about 700,000, and your population's about 3 million. Mm -hmm. So there are size similarities, probably scale similarities. Right. And that has to do with, you know, that'll affect things like shipping, economy of scale for other things. So I think that's where that argument needs to be, because mm -hmm. hard-nosed people who are spending scarce resources, and that, right. that is, after all, what economics is all about, are going to want to know that. Right, exactly. Yeah, what is that bottom line? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to try to formulate my question as I um, speak, Leslie. I, uh, I was thinking about your example of Robeson County and the textile manufacturer leaving and building local food economies and you thinking about wanting to make sure that uh, it's not just serving an elite restaurant market in Wilmington. And our keynote speaker at the um, our annual meeting last year was talking about corporate accountability and communities being able to have some control of the decisions. Yeah. Um, that affect their economy and livelihood. And I'm just wondering if in a place like Robeson, um, they thought about uh, this idea of food sovereignty and, and the idea that um, having corporations be able to come and go and uh, take their the community's resources with them when right. they leave is acceptable to them. Right. Is that conversation happening? Well, I mean, I mean, certainly the conversation about uh, corporations <laughs> has happened, certainly, and, and obligations to community in place. And, um, you know, when I was doing these interviews with displaced workers, um, it wasn't just once that I heard stories about textile workers who, you know, the management would come in and say, wow, you've been here so long, you've done such a great job, I'm going to give you a trip to Mexico and go for holiday and then get to Mexico and find out they're training the person who's about to take their job. And, you know, so, so yes, I mean, there's that, that palpable, you know, uh, hate <laughs> for what has happened to their communities. Robinson County, uh, the county next to it, which is just, you know, you throw a rock, you're in the next county, Hoke County, has a, um, a Lombie Native American food hub developing, and it's, um, you know, it's bringing food product, farm product in from, Robison and from Hoke and um, Scotland counties and uh, it's organic certified and you know so there there is this food sovereignty component that's developing um, but yeah I mean the, you know so it's this immiseration of agriculture of uh, uh, you know um, of manufacturer workers textile I mean this it's these are grim stories right um, and <laughs> it's a long Slow, slow moving train. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I was wondering, like, I know that um, food, food deserts, which is what you're talking about, they're not just country in the south, but also in the Midwest. Have you thought about maybe uh, um, 
doing some programs out there. No, I hope programs get done, but I can't. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, right. I mean, there are people who do great work, and I mean, and we've got lots of you know uh, great pieces from uh, folks who've been doing this work. Yeah, no, I mean, I can't. No, but yeah. Um, Detroit has great projects. I mean, in sociology and, and sociology development, sociology, we see a lot of food work going on, policy work, sociology of food, labor. Labor issues are huge. Um, yeah. So you mentioned the, um, the therapeutic benefits. Is there any talk or anything happened with the prison system and the, the, the criminal justice system in general? Because I would imagine you've got some problems with that there in Mississippi, and you have the, this need for agricultural labor. Anybody thought about Well, I know one of the prisons was the biggest farm in Mississippi yeah, forever. Yeah, I can picture that. Um, yeah. And one of my colleagues, uh, Keisha Johnson, is looking at incarceration and food, food security amongst incarcerated family members who have um, family members incarcerated. So that's a new area, I think, of research. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also practical reality, because a lot of felons just can't get jobs very easily. Right. And actually, in Wilmington, there is a program. It's funny; I don't, can't believe I didn't mention it. But it was—it's a reentry program around uh, urban farming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's—it's—it's it's, it's got its bumps, but it's—it's it's beginning to work. Yeah. Everything does. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bumping thing. Is anybody on the phone or would they be asking questions? I, yeah, that's what I'm monitoring. No one's asking any questions. For me. Well, let's all give a thank you. I'm glad to be here. This has been really wonderful. Um, we'll host another seminar in the spring through the center, and um, we also have our annual Healthy Eating in Context Symposium um, the third week in March, if I'm recalling correctly. And um, the focus of that this year is the intersection between environmental justice work and um, food systems work. So it should be super exciting. Mm -hmm.